Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about the curious endings of things in this world. My name is Emily. And I'm Sarah. And Sarah, I'm going to bring the room down right away by talking about the Bhopal disaster and what happened with the chemicals released and the people that were affected and the company okay. that, that did both. So uh, if you're in a if you're in kind of a sad mood, you might want to listen to something else. Just skip to Sarah's. Skip like 25 minutes ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so are you familiar with the Bhopal disaster at all? No, not really. Uh, so this happened in 1984. Union Carbide, India Limited, so which is a subsidiary of Union Carbide, was or had, had a pesticide plant in Bhopal in India. And it made carbaryl, which is a pesticide that involves using something called methyl isocyanate. And there's a bunch of other different things that are involved with carbaryl. The Bhopal plant, along with several other plants, so they weren't the only ones doing this, they used an older method to make the pesticide. And it involved methyl isocyanate and then different reactions. So they had to store a fair amount of liquid. M- MIC is what it's what it, the acronym is for this. They had to store a fair amount of it just sitting around in order to uh, make the pesticide. So when and then when the demand for carbaryl fell in the 80s, the Union Carbide plant ended up having just a stockpile of methyl isocyanate sitting around. There were oh. yeah, it it was it gets worse. Don't worry, it gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> there were multiple smaller leaks prior to December 2nd, 1984. At least I counted something like 15 of them. And the plant had actually been under journalistic investigation due to the lack of personal protective equipment worn by workers. But none of the leaks were considered major enough to change how operations happened at the factory. And there were several small uh, leaks of other constituents like phosgene. And then there were also issues of exposure to methyl isocyanate and there were equipment failures, etc., the methyl isocyanate was stored in underground tanks, and the protocol was that the tanks would never be more than 50% full. They would be pressurized with nitrogen gas to allow for the methyl isocyanate to be pumped out. And then also, they were supposed to be kept at around 4 degrees Celsius. So there were supposed to be a refrigerant systems around the tanks. So... On or around December 1st, 1984, at least one methyl isocyanate tank in the plant was 75% full and had not been able to fully pressurize for quite some time, so the methyl isocyanate couldn't be pumped out. There were also issues with a flare tower that was supposed to burn methyl isocyanate gas as it was vented. That flare tower was taken offline in 1984, and a tank fix was attempted, but neither of the fixes were completed before the plant resumed production on December 1st, 1984. 
a lot of the safety systems in the plant, both in these basement tanks and other places, were either malfunctioning, corroded, or non-operational at this point. And there were also supposed to be gas scrubbers on the, uh, basically, the, the ventilation stacks, like the smokestacks of the plant. And only one of those was functional. So it didn't have, it was using uh, caustic soda to remove the methyl isocyanate. And so if only one was functional, it couldn't properly scrub all of the methyl isocyanate out if there was a, an industrial accident. So on December 2nd, 1984, you remember I said that the the tank was brought back online and, and partially pressurized December 1st. Right. So water made its way into the tank that was over full and under pressurized. And this right. happened at, at night. Yeah, there were, there was repair work taking place in some of the piping around, it said around 500 meters from the tanks. But, and there is some confusion. Okay. I'll talk about how water may or may not have gotten into the tank. But methyl isocyanate is reactive with water. And it's the water introduction caused a runaway exothermic reaction. Exothermic means it generates heat as it reacts. And this was escalated by various components that were in disrepair in the factory. So as the methyl isocyanate ended up escaping... It started reacting with other components in the factory, like exposed iron and other exposed water, so that the leak became worse and worse and worse. The gas leak was only noticed when workers became symptomatic of methyl isocyanate exposure at around 11.45 p.m., but it was decided that repairs wouldn't be made for another hour until after the tea break. After the tea break, the tank itself was at 40 psi, and it had been at 2 PSI before the reaction. So that's pounds of pressure per square inch. So going from 2 to 40 is a pretty big jump. And the temperature was actually unmeasurably high based on the gauge that they had on the tank. The gauge only went to 77 degrees Fahrenheit. And so it was hotter than that. And it, it had been intended to be kept at 4 degrees centigrade. Let me double check what that is in Fahrenheit and do some math while I'm talking. <laughs> If you ever want to know how to convert centigrade to Fahrenheit, you multiply the centigrade by 1.8. So 4 times 1.8, which equals 7.2, plus 32. So 39.2 degrees. So it's it was intended to be kept at what would be your home refrigerator temperature. And it was over 77 Fahrenheit. So... A nice Florida day instead of the inside of a refrigerator. Once the tank hit 55 PSI, it started venting atmospherically because all safety systems were either inoperable or had fallen apart. And then after two hours, so at around 2 a.m., 40 tons of methyl isocyanate gas had been vented. And the wind moved the gas southeasternly over Bhopal. And it, it included going over like a railway station and along railroad tracks. So the alarm, there's there's an alarm system. There's an interior alarm and an exterior alarm to warn the people in the factory and outside of the factory about a chemical issue. An alarm was sounded by a worker at 12.50 a.m. on December 3rd. But previ prior to that, the interior and exterior sirens had been separated mechanically. 
they were initially intended to work as one unit, but they had been separated and the exterior siren was turned off rather quickly so as not to alarm the public, even though the factory was being evacuated because the gas was like exposure to the gas was intolerable at that point. Uh, Police actually called the factory several times between midnight and 2 a.m., but the workers there that answered the phones deflected them and said they were managing it or the leak wasn't too bad, etc. The external alarm resumed at 2 a.m. after the leak had ended, and there was information provided to local hospitals that there would be uh, accident victims coming in, but they were told first it was an ammonia issue. And then a phosgene leak. And then MIC, but they weren't told that MIC stood for methyl isocyanate. So the the hospital staff were informed that there would be people showing up who were sick, but not why or how or what to do about it. And then at around 2 a.m., a worker also walked into a police station and informed them that a leak had occurred, but it had been plugged. So that's sort of the timeline of the gas leak itself. Now, in the city, uh, methyl isocyanate gas is two times as dense as air, so the gas sort of settled close to the ground in the city. Children were disproportionately exposed due to the weight of the gas keeping them sort of right in the thick of the gas cloud. Yeah. The gas cloud also most likely contained, and this is a quote, chloroform, dichloromethane, hydrogen chloride, methylamine, dimethylamine, trimethylamine, and carbon dioxide. None of those things are comfortable to breathe in really any concentration other than carbon dioxide. We can handle breathing in some carbon dioxide, but it's not something that we thrive on. It's just something our lungs can remove from our bodies. So that cloud of gas started settling over the city in the middle of the night. And people started learning about the gas accident at the plant. I was watching a video from the BBC of a woman remembering that her cousin knocked on their family door in the middle of the night and told them there'd been a gas accident. But there wasn't a lot of information about what that meant. And so everybody just went back to sleep in their houses. Uh, And the next day, a lot of people went about their daily business. And they noticed bodies laying around And the woman in the video mentioned that her father thought it was people who had passed out drunk because it was wedding season. What? But in fact, they were, yeah. And so, you know, somebody's having a party and people pass out drunk. Like, it's not, he wasn't approving of it, but something that happens. They were actually dead bodies because of the gas leak. Oh, my gosh. So the huge cloud that erupted from the plant and settled over the city resulted in a lot of people inhaling the gas directly and then getting exposure in their eyes, in their mouths, in their in, in, in a mucosal membrane. At least 3,000 people died the first day, and at least 8,000 died within two weeks. The official death count varies significantly, but 16,000 is sort of the official death count of people from the initial accident and the initial incident. So the so where did those, you know, I, I said I'd be tracing the components of this. Where did the dead bodies go? Right. People carried the bodies to mortuaries and hospitals, but there were way too many dead bodies. So they uh, were stored outside. They were actually placed outside, usually with sheets on them. 
And a lot of the bodies were unidentified. So people had to come to the hospitals or their, wherever the mortuary was, if it wasn't associated with a hospital, and try to find their relatives in a field of dead bodies, thousands of them. And there were mass funerals and cremations that followed. And it's, it's, this wasn't really talked about, but it, it, it's unknown what the public health impacts were that that many dead people had in the immediate aftermath of a disaster. Because dead bodies are immediately hazardous to living ones. And the sort of sanitation issue of 3,000 dead bodies overnight and 8,000 within two weeks, it wasn't really talked about in any of the sources that I could find. But you know there had to be some kind of impact. This wasn't something that occurred in a vacuum and got cleaned up immediately. Right. This is horrifying. You yeah, wake up it's... and there's dead bodies everywhere and there's lots of dead bodies. That sounds awful. And I was, I was trying to find out the sort of population of the area. And we'll get to the sort of numbers of exposed in a minute. But it's it's like if... Raleigh and Durham, everybody woke up in the morning and there were 3,000 people dead. And then by the end of two weeks, there were 8,000 people dead. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So the methyl isocyanate, like I said, it enters lungs and irritates mucosal membranes. And the causes of death were from things like choking and asphyxiation or pulmonary edema, which is water around the heart or cardiac collapse. So it was they were literally irritated to death by the chemicals. The and this took a lot of it took a lot of figuring and a lot of time to determine who how many people were injured by this disaster. Yeah. Over 500,000 were exposed and injured. So we've got the deceased around 16,000 were directly associated with this. And then we've got 500,000 people exposed and injured. And while there have been attempts to survey the populations that were exposed, like a small chunk of them, to see what kind of health problems develop over time, since the incident, around 75% of the survey respondents have moved away and were not followed by the survey. And I can't possibly blame them for moving away. We'll talk about where all this stuff went in the environment. But it means that sort of the full impact of this disaster will probably never be known, very similarly to... Uh, the Chernobyl disaster. Wow. There have been serious concerns about prenatal and neonatal damage. Right after the disaster, the stillbirth rate went up, I want to say 300%. And oh the my miscarriage gosh. rate. Yeah. The miscarriage rate went up 200%. And then to this day, they have a much higher than national miscarriage and stillbirth rate. And one of the problems that has come up in the area is there were there was a big effort to build hospitals and have people uh, reviewed for health problems and at least try to take care of these people who are exposed to this methyl isocyanate. But the hospitals focused on a lot of cardiac issues and some neurological issues. So there hasn't been a lot of building of infrastructure for gynecological issues, obstetric issues, and uh, pediatric issues. Emily, those so are lady problems. Well, and yeah, and then the kids, like, it it, it seems like it's the type of thing where the review's not going to happen until there's detrimental stuff going on for the kids. So, mm-hmm. 
it's just sort of a blind spot that I people note, you know, as I was reading about this, it was noted that it was kind of a blind spot in the care that's being provided. So that's sort of discussing where all of this went in people. In the environment, uh, I think I said before in this, methyl isocyanate is water soluble. And while the food farmed in the area was cleared for eating fairly early after the disaster, fish was recommended against. And prior to 1984, or even in 1982, the water wells in the area immediately surrounding the plant were already undrinkable with contamination. And so the contamination has just spread to a wider radius. And then the plant site was also used, and I believe this was prior to 1984 and then also after 1984, as a toxic waste dump. And is contaminated to the extent that the ongoing decontamination efforts that went on for decades didn't finish the cleanup. And the factory is non-operational now, but it's still open to the air. And the containment efforts that were put into place are deteriorating. Oh, fantastic. Uh, Yeah. So it's basically a massive source of contamination ongoing. A journalist in the early 2000s actually went to the factory to report on the conditions there and was so sick from visiting the factory that they had to be treated at a local hospital for a week. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so don't urban explore at the old Union Carbide factory, please. And thank you. Now, what happened to the economy of the area? Because this factory provided work for a huge number of people who lived in the area. Setting up economic recovery was really challenging. And there were attempts made to establish things like housing projects and funds for the widows of, you know, men that died. And then also uh, monetary payouts to people whose family members had died, people who'd been injured, etc. But a lot of these efforts didn't take into account things like the fact that raising cattle is a major source of income in the area. So people can't live in an apartment building. They need to live in a small house that they can access their cattle. So a lot of the attempts to set up work or housing for the people there were either economically disruptive or unusable. And the work at the factory was actually resumed fairly quickly after the disaster to attempt to use up the remaining methyl isocyanate. Uh, when the when the factory started back up, there was a second evacuation from the area, and so people were there were two like major sort of exodus t- from the area because of operation in the factory. One right after the disaster, and then one after the disaster when they restarted the factory. So that's basically what happened. As many people as could left. There's still contamination around the area. And people are still having health problems from something that happened now almost 40 years ago. That's So what awful. happened to you? Yeah, it's... I, I, I warned Sarah, I was like, is yours cheerful? Because mine's a downer. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened to Union Carbide? Union Carbide is currently owned by Dow Chemical, but at the time it was not. And the Union Carbide India Limited lands were sold to EverReady Industries India Limited in or after this disaster. And they continued cleanup efforts until 1998. And then the land was turned over to the state of Madhya Pradesh, which is where Bhopal 
It's it's in Madhya Pradesh, which is a state in India. Union Carbide offered initially a $50 million settlement right away. But after years and years and years and years, like I think it was close to a decade of legal wrangling, a $470 million settlement was uh, decided upon. And the funding of a hospital was also something that Union Carbide was required to do. And there was a lot of and continues to be a lot of activist activity in the area to work on organizing people to attempt to help them get access to care, access to either work opportunities or financial compensation if they can't work because of the disaster. It's become a very politically active topic. And so much so that when Dow Chemical purchased Union Carbide, they started using a a private investigation firm to keep tabs on activists in the area. And Dow Chemical actually <laughs> maintains, yeah, they actually maintain that the source of the water and into the methyl isocyanate tank was an employee running a hose directly into the tank. Sure it was. And they, ha- well, and I'm not going to say it wasn't because that's certainly a possibility. And I wasn't there and I had not yet been born when this happened, so. <laughs> but all uh, all the sources that I found speaking to, uh, I guess sabotage, were owned by Dow and sort of branching off of Dow's attempt to sort of downplay what was unequivocally a not well maintained factory regardless of if somebody ran a hose into a tank and blew it to pieces, there were a lot of problems before then. Right. And it should have been an, a, a stoppable industrial accident, and it wasn't because of poor repair. So regardless of the source of the incident, the ill repair of the factory was a serious problem. So... And this is just sort of the last little bit. But in 2004, one half of a group called the Yes Men, Andy Bicklebaum, posed as Jude Finisterra, pretending to be a Dow chemical representative. And he he claimed on a faked website that Dow had no intention of participating in any cleanup. And then he went on on to the BBC for an interview that Dow was going to liquidate Union Carbide and then use the money to pay for cleanup and medical costs. Oh, Dow got yeah. So Dow got wind of this two hours later, and they issued a ret- uh, denial. But that gave more traction to the fake story, and the BBC did retract the story eventually. But it resulted in like a massive drop in Dow stock in the short term. And then there was an additional Channel Four interview after all this came out that it was a hoax. That's an- Channel Four is another British station Mm -hmm. and when asked whether the huge disappointment in the Bhopal area after finding out the hoax was a hoax and these people were not going to get billions of dollars to try to clean up uh, Bicklebaum pointed out that Dow's damages were way way worse than briefly disappointing people which I guess okay and that he'd heard that the people of Bhopal processed their after they processed their disappointment they were actually glad more attention was being brought to the issue in 2004 I mean Sure, maybe. And then in uh, 2005, at an international payments conference, 
uh, one of the yes men, it might have been Bicklebaum again, it might have been the other guy, uh, showed up as a Dow representative named Erastus Ham, <laughs> and they showed up. They showed off the Dow's new acceptable risk calculator and acceptable risk mascot to bankers at the conference. <laughs> uh, so that's the story of where the aftermath of the Bobble disaster has landed. The people immediately surrounding it: Dow Chemical, Union Carbide the environment, etc. This is a horrible story. Uh, right? Yeah. The, the guy really the guy who was trolling Dow by pretending to be in Dow and then went to a conference to have an acceptable risk calculator, uh, I can't decide how I feel about that. Yeah. At one point it's hilarious and the other point it's really sad. It is. It's it is all those things at once. Yeah. Every single one of those things. All of them at the same time. Wow. I just, I can't get over the mental image of waking up and there's all these dead bodies in the street and I just think they're drunk people. Yeah. And then later learning that like 8,000 people died. Mm Mm-hmm. Just unreal. Wow. Okay. Holy moly. I don't blame those so people you... for moving either. No, I mean, if you could get out, I would. Oh, yeah, if you could. I'm feel sure horrible lo- for the people that are still stuck there. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure there's I'm very poor people that can't leave. Yeah, exactly. So for mine, I'm going to stay in the 80s. We're staying in the 80s. I'm going to talk about where did the TV broadcast signals for WGN and WTTW, both in the Chicagoland area, go on November 22nd, 1987. It's also known as the Max Headroom Incident. (gasps) (laughs) Yes! So do you remember Max Headroom, Emily? You were pretty young, but you might remember him. Uh, I remember the concept because I watched a lot of VH1 when I was a kid. Yes. Okay. They talked about Max Headroom. So I'm glad you remember VH1 because Max Headroom uh, eventually became uh, a music video host. So he would say silly things in before the videos and then the videos would come on. So Max Headroom, and we'll talk about him a little bit. I won't go too in depth into him because he's, uh, he's an integral part of the story, but he's not the most important piece. So Max Headroom, for all of those people that did not exist in the world beforehand and don't really know who he is, he was an 80s character who was supposed to be a computer generated AI and he was a funny character and he was originally a BBC Channel 4 creation so he he started uh, in the BBC in about 1984 he was created and the whole story centered around this reporter the movie I watched the movie last night it's called Max Headroom 20 minutes into the future I I watched it last night so it'd be fresh in my mind so you can find it on YouTube I totally suggested it's a low budget BBC film 
that is still pretty good. But Edison Carter, who is a reporter in the future, 20 minutes into the future, apparently, but it's kind of a <laughs> post-apocalyptic world. The only thing that's important is ratings. So Edison Carter works for a conglomerate called Network 23 which is a future TV network. And Network 23 has created this thing called blipverts. And blipverts are these, I couldn't even, I couldn't really get a feel for what they were, but they're basically like subconscious advertisements, but they turn out to be dangerous and are blowing people up. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So Edison Carter finds out about this. And he watches a tape that happens to be, like, secreted away and part of Network 23. And he gets hit on the head being chased by these goons um, by a Max Headroom sign in the parking lot. So in Britain at the time, there was Max Headroom um, on, you know, like, parking things that would go down. So the Max Headroom, the height, Max Height. They use Max oh. Height now. Yes, yeah. this is where this name comes from. So, Matt Fewer, the actor who plays Edison Carter, he is the reporter, and he gets hit on the head, and the goons take him to this guy who make a AI of his brain. They take his brain and take the synaptic pulses, and Edison Carter becomes Max Headroom. But Edison Carter's still alive, and he comes back, and video pirates end up with Max Headroom. Anyway, go watch the movie. But Max Headroom, this is where he was born. And Max Headroom became extremely popular after this movie. He was picked up by HBO. And later he was the face of New Coke. So Coke tried to, there was the, the Coke-Pepsi wars. <laughs> right, yeah. in the 80s so he uh, was the face of new coke everybody loved him he was on talk shows like david letterman he was a big deal he was really pretty funny but in real life it was just videos of matt fewer the original actor who played edison, edison carter and max headroom it was just him in these like kind of weird plasticky suit like with a background and he wore like a mask to make him more look computer generated I, I'm sorry to tell you guys, this is before computer CGI was very good or existed almost at all. So, yeah. Anyway, so Max Headroom, it's a challenge to this corporate overlord kind of feeling. And definitely watch the movie. You'll get a better sense of it. But he's, he's integral to the story, but not completely a part of it. So, where did the signal go? So Sunday night, November 22nd, 1987, this is where we are. I'm nine years old. Emily is three? One. Emily's one. Emily is one. I am nine. The night of November 22nd, it's a Sunday. People are watching the news. WGN, Chicagoland. In the middle of a David, I think his name is Dan Roan. Either, it's either David Roan or Dan Roan. I think it's Dan Roan. He was covering a Chicago Bulls event. He was talking oh. about it. And in the middle of what he was saying, in the middle of his, his reporting, all of a sudden, the signal is interrupted. And in the picture, for about 30 seconds, there's a man in a Max Headroom mask, 
appears on the screen and he you couldn't really hear what he was saying there was really no audio but eventually the engineers at WGN got control back of their signal so you only saw 30 seconds of this bizarre Max Headroom mask guy kind of waving his hands around which was bizarre but only 30 seconds so two hours later, this happens again on WTTW Chicago, which is the PBS station. There's an episode of Doctor Who playing, and the engineers had all gone home for the evening. So no one was there to take back the signal. Mm -hmm. So 90 seconds of a pirate broadcast of this guy in a Max Headroom mask with this rotating background, like someone was behind him, like moving it around, extremely distorted audio. I'm not going to say everything that was in it. It's just bizarre. I've watched it about six times now. And there's people that have gone in and done like uh, captions. So you can actually tell what he's saying without them. I'd mm -hmm. have no idea what he was saying. It's so distorted, but he basically says, he thinks he's better than Chuck Swirsky, who at the time was a sportscaster. <laughs> he calls him a freaking liberal. He holds oh. up a Pepsi can, so he's making fun of the Max Headroom Coke mm -hmm. Catch the New Wave thing. So he's making fun of that. He sings bars of the Clutch Cargo theme song, which is an old, and I watched a little bit of it, it's a very disturbing 1950s cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> he continues humming. He flashes a dildo. Wow. <laughs> he talks about how he made a giant masterpiece for the world's giant newspaper nerds. He puts on a glove. And then you see his bare ass and a lady in either a a French maid outfit or German barmaid, probably German barmaid outfit, spank him with a fly swatter. And then it's wow. over. And 90 seconds has gone by and he ended the broadcast. Yeah. Really bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> and like for the time, all those, all the nudity and the sex toys and stuff, that would have been us like people would have dropped dead from shock yes they wouldn't have said they didn't say dildo at all at the news reports they called right. them marital aids so they yeah. didn't say they didn't say dildo they said marital aid and they didn't say his butt they said a portion of his anatomy <laughs> so the only evidence <laughs> afterwards were all those people who had taped the doctor who were taping the doctor who episode and so they had tapes of this and so the next day people were like ranged from angry to thinking it was completely hilarious but the mm -hmm. fcc were really unhappy about this so they started an investigation with the fbi and there were news stories everywhere about everywhere the next day about the pirate radio broadcast so the fcc from what they could tell after having photo lab they had a photo lab and they did stills of every like second of the broadcast to see if they could figure out who this person was and they just couldn't find anything. 
the only things they could really think were the early evidence suggested it was probably someone with a broadcasting background because it required pretty sophisticated equipment to interrupt a microwave broadcast at the time. It's not something you would have laying around. Mm-hmm. And you would also have to know how to do it. So they, from the main researcher, from the main guy who is ahead of the investigation, he, he, he has some theories. He said, so I think this person is probably a Chicagoland native or have li- has lived here a long time. Because he references the Chicago Tribune. He has some beef with Chuck Swirsky, maybe. because he talks about him and he has to be old enough to either have watched the original clutch cargo from the 1950s to 60s or watched the reruns in the 70s so he has to be old enough for that and he mentions your love is fading which is a reference to a chicago blues artist i guess so those that was really all they had to go on and there was other like evidence that it was probably happening on a rooftop between Sears and John Hancock Tower. And that's how they had gotten their equipment up there and had interrupted the broadcast. I mean, which is wow. no easy feat in itself either. So these people no. knew what they were doing. And they eventually dropped the case because there was no evidence. All they had were these videotapes from Doctor Who fans who had taped it the night before, who had donated. And that's really all they had. They didn't have anything else, really, and they just had theories. So it was dropped. It was a mystery. So 30 years later, people, generally people who hadn't been born yet or people who were on the Internet, the Internet kind of took it, ran with it. All kinds of theories emerged, some of them intriguing, some of them not. So in 2010, uh, a guy on Reddit, I think his uh, username is Bopogue, he says, I think I know the guys that did this. He was 16 years old at the time. He says he's not going to use their names, but he's going to call them J and K. And he says these two brothers were probably it. They were heavily involved in the hacking and freaking scene in Chicago. Their apartment was completely full of crazy equipment. Um, they often had house parties, and the, the day of the incident, he overheard them talking about doing something really big. And when he asked about it, they said, just watch Channel 11 later. So he thought that oh. was weird, but he didn't really think about it. He also said Jay had a really bizarre, sexually deviant sense of humor, and it seemed to match the bizarre humor of the video. So... Everyone kind of ran with this, and they were all excited. They're like, oh, he knows these guys. This, these are the guys that did it. But later, Bo Pogue updated, I think it was like maybe a year later. He had been talking to the guy who does Fuzzy Memories TV and Museum of Ch- uh, Classical Chicago TV, and they had decided that there was no way that these two guys had done it because they thought it was an inside job. They think it's someone who is either heavily involved in WGN or yeah, they think it's someone who has a beef with WGN. That was their whole thing. There was another guy who was mentioned on the internet. His name is Eric Fournier. He was in a pump punk band and apparently he had wanted to put his punk punk rock 
video online and interrupt the broadcast. But it was later decided that he did he just really didn't have the technical knowledge for it. So that was over. Mm-hmm. So we're left with pretty much nothing. It's a inside job from what people tell is probably a Chicagoland native. That's all we have. <laughs> it's still unsolved. Wow. Yeah. So what I got away from a bunch of people talking about it was they think it's a personal vendetta possibly against Chuck Swirsky and WGN. It's a massive troll on Chicagoland. <laughs> like they're basically trolling <laughs> Chicago. Um, maybe he did it just because he could and maybe he did it for laughs. I mean, that's really all we have. But people are absolutely fascinated with this and have still, they're still like trying to figure out who did this. And that's all we have. I did not know that much detail about it. (laughs) uh, You know, on VH1, they briefly covered that it, it interrupted a broadcast and that people were really freaked out. But that was it. That was all they talked about. And this was one of the largest broadcast signal interruptions there had been. There had been a couple before. The first one was the first one in the U.S. I'm not going to say the first one ever. The first one in the U.S. was this guy. um, His last name was McDougal. And he interrupted the broadcast of HBO. And he had color bars that said that was basically protesting the price increase of HBO. For about 12 minutes, and then it was over. It really wasn't that exciting. <laughs> he was just protesting, and they didn't know who it was, but he felt so bad about it. He came he came forward later to say, Aww. like, oh, I did this. Yeah, I was like, really? Just don't tell anyone. Don't worry about it. I know. Well, see, the Max Headroom incident, guys, they've never been caught, and they think they're at least – there's the Max Headroom guy – there's the woman in the barmaid costume with the fly swatter, and there has to be someone behind the camera. And right. what about the person like rotating the background? Was it the lady and then she just put it down and then smacked his butt? I don't know. It's a mystery that is still around, but that's where the, the broadcast went. It went to Max Edrum, masked guy, for his wow. bizarre 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 broadcast (laughs) and we wouldn't know a thing about it if people weren't recording doctor who yeah it would just be stories oh that's funny so people who uh were not born in the 80s uh this is a common thing before this is before dvrs this is before any kind of thing like that you had a vcr and you put a big tape in it and you basically taped what was on the TV if you wanted to keep it for later, if you wanted to watch it later. If you had a, sometimes people had VHS or VCRs that you could like program to tape at a certain time, but that's what we had. <laughs> so the And equi- that was all we had. Yeah. And so the equipment, the equipment that was, what that they used for this was not something that you could just go pick up. It was not something you could go buy. It was serious equipment. Like 
video, like actually video machines of like taping people doing stuff, video cameras, uh, they were not that common either. I mean, you could buy one of those consumer models, but they were not cheap. And no, you needed to be from a television station or I don't even know what that would be it. Yeah. It's not like you were going to find it, and it's not like you could go on the internet and, and, and find it on the internet at some sale. Yeah, was there even an internet at that point? There was some, like, maybe something. Not really. Um, it, yeah. Yes, no, but not really. It was more um, military use kind of stuff. Yeah, so... You weren't tracking this down unless you were, you knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy. <laughs> exactly. So that's why it points to probably an inside job or someone with a background in broadcasting. And that's all we got. <laughs> right on. That's, oh man, that's crazy. It is crazy. And I'll have links to the uh, actual video because it is so bizarre. I watched it a few times and I was like, Okay. <laughs> it's kind of scary. It would be frightening if that was being if you were watching that as a broadcast just because it has no context and it's not something people could really do. Yeah. And I don't know I, I, the Doctor Who at the time it definitely was not part of Doctor Who. So it wasn't like you're like, oh, this is a weird part of the show. No. <laughs> no, it would look totally different because the 80s Doctor Who looked like. It looked like the inside of a Star Trek set, but more sparse. Exactly. I'm not trying to be insulting to Doctor Who or anything like no, that. No. That's it just was, what it looked like. It's very true. It wasn't, it wasn't as beautiful and lush as it is now. It was definitely in a studio, taped in a studio. So yeah, if you if you know anything about the Max Headroom incident, by all means, let us know. Yeah, we'll interview you. You don't have to tell us who you are, <laughs> but we will interview you if you're interested. <laughs> Where does a podcast? Gmail.com. Get in touch. Exactly. Or if you just want to talk about this and ask questions, by all means, yeah. email us or uh, find us on social media. It's pretty fascinating. And I love it's that amazing. the new generation has picked it up and we're, are, are fascinated as well with it. Because um, I was alive during it and you were a baby. so. Mm -hmm. I was alive, but only kind of. <laughs> I was still baking. So... Very cool. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Sarah. Absolutely. Then again, you can reach us where it is a podcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest. And we have a website, where it is it podcast.com. Feel free to get in touch with us if you have questions, comments, concerns, or suggestions for future episodes. Bye.